Eavesdrop on experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Recognising that COVID-19 may have emerged from the trade of wildlife, several governments around the world have enacted new or more effective regulations to control this trade. Jerry Ryan is a PhD student in the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne and a conservation scientist working on Southeast Asian and Australian biodiversity. He's also a board member for the Society for Conservation Biology Asia. And in 2020, Jerry collaborated on a paper titled COVID-19 Highlights the Need for More Effective Wildlife Trade Legislation, published in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution. Jerry says that more epidemics like COVID-19 are inevitable unless we revisit our relationship with the natural world. Jerry Ryan sat down for a Zoom chat with Dr. Andy Horvath. Jerry, what do you say to people at barbecues that you do? Uh, it, it depends who they are. If it's a little kid, sometimes I'll say something like, I count vultures or I chase possums around an imaginary forest and count what happens to them. If it's uh, someone a bit older, I'll say I, I do modelling for wildlife conservation. And if it's uh, someone who's in the sector, I'll say I tend to look at um, a range of decision-making processes and look at quantitative methods, so statistical, mathematical-type modelling approaches to look at how we can improve making decisions for wildlife conservation so that there's more trees in the forest, more um, possums climbing those trees, more dolphins swimming in the rivers and the, the oceans. Jerry, I think you're the right person to ask, what's the connection between global pandemics, humans, livestock, wildlife and conservation? I know that's a huge question, but where do we start to tackle this discussion topic? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge topic and it's, it's one that lots of people have been looking into for a long time. But in, in these times of a, a global pandemic where absolutely everyone's affected, it, it's really come into focus. So people, particularly in the, the veterinary sort of field, have had this concept for a long time of, of one health, the idea that human health is absolutely intricately interlinked with uh, wildlife health and wildlife diseases. And so we've seen for, for history eternal that that diseases cross into humans from wildlife. And so as we're in a more and more connected world and humans are still interacting with wildlife, although many of us spend our, our times in the city maybe not interacting with too much, but uh, the birds in our backyard, but, um, there's all sorts of pathways for diseases to cross from wildlife to humans and then spread very rapidly as, as we've seen last year and, and into 2020. Is that what they refer to as zoonotic diseases? Yeah, that's right. So a zoonotic disease is, is really a, any sort of disease, virus, a bacteria that's originated in wildlife and can cross into humans. And so we've seen that recently with things like uh, the Ebola virus is believed to have come from uh, an, an antelope sort of animal in Africa. The AIDS virus is believed to have come from chimpanzees and and most recently, the, the COVID-19, the virus that that disease comes from, the SARS-CoV-2 viruses, I think believed to have come across from bats, though we're not really sure if it's sort of come through some 
intermediary animal as well. I've also heard pangolins mentioned, those funny scaly-looking small creatures. Yeah, pangolins are. They're a very cute little animal, but they're unfortunately for them the most widely illegally traded species on the planet. They're a little anteater-type animal. They've got sort of scales all over their back. They tend to curl up into a little ball when they're threatened, a little bit like an echidna here, but they don't have the spikes. They've just got thick scales, and the scales are are, are made of the same sort of stuff as as our hair and fingernails. And they're used in a lot of traditional medicines in parts of Asia, um, and they're also traded for eating. Uh, They've been linked to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the the COVID-19 pandemic, but it's not yet clear what their role, if any, was in the transmission pathway of that virus from bats through to humans, whether or not they they jumped. They're a very common species in marketplaces in Asia, and so it's possible that um, the virus came to us via pangolins. You mentioned that uh, there's a supply-demand relationship with pangolins in that they're eaten and they're used for medicine. But is there actually any science that medicine works? Well, there's a lot of traditional medicines that have been used for a long time that seem to have had some sort of effect over a long period of time. I'm not specifically familiar with pangolin scales, but I know that um, keratin, which is what hair and scales are made of is often thought to have a, an effect similar to aspirin, which is a drug that we can produce very cheaply and is widely available around the world. So if that's about all it's useful for, it's probably not necessary to be um, catching pangolins when we can just go down to the pharmacy for an aspirin. Jerry, your work is involved in the conservation of Southeast Asian countries and Australian biodiversity. Why that particular catchment? Are we the Amazon of the South? So uh, Southeast Asia uh, and Australia have got just wonderful biodiversity. And obviously we know Australia's um, fauna is very, very distinctive. We've got all sorts of um, marsupials, kangaroos, possums um, that we don't see anywhere else in the world. We've got wonderful monotremes, so egg-laying creatures that are absolutely nowhere else. They're your, your echidnas and your platypuses. Um, and Southeast Asia has got a, its own wonderful suite of biodiversity, but it's also very, very threatened. There's obviously some great big cities in Southeast Asia and the, the human population is really big. So there's a lot of demands on land in Southeast Asia. And so there's a lot of competition between people and wildlife or space as well. You mentioned you were counting vultures. So what part of the conservation do you analyse and why? So vultures is a is a fascinating microcosm of the interaction between humans and wildlife. So particularly in in India and parts of South Asia, about 15 years ago to 20 years ago, people started noticing that vulture populations were starting to decrease. And people tend to hate vultures. They they think they're ugly. They think, you know, they eat dead things. They're, They're pretty nasty. People really don't have a good impression of them but they provide a really useful service in that they're they're nature's cleaners. And so they clean up all of the the rotten stuff that's that's around. And one of the services that they did was to clean up dead cattle. But unfortunately, people had been using a drug to treat some problems in, in buffalo and in cattle, which is similar to 
a drug that people use to treat joint pain in humans. And what was happening is that when these animals died, if they had this drug in their system, if vultures ate that carcass, it caused organ failure, which meant that a large number of vultures will eat a carcass. And so if that carcass is essentially for them poisoned, then huge numbers of birds can die. And so the populations declined very, very quickly. And then what we saw was populations of feral dogs in cities increasing because there's suddenly a whole lot more meat left around and there weren't the vultures to be eating it. And so vultures, particularly in South and Southeast Asia, are really the populations have declined. And so there's been a lot of focus on conservation of vultures over the last decade or so because of this problem. And so they've also taken steps in in Nepal, in India, and various other countries to ban the use of these drugs in livestock so that the vultures are not uh, are able to come back. Okay, so Jerry, how do you count vultures? One of the problems of vultures has been that their food sources are often contaminated. And so one tool that's used in vulture conservation is a thing called a vulture restaurant. And that is a means to provide safe food through carcasses that are known not to be contaminated with these uh, drugs that are bad for vultures. That's a tool that's regularly used in Europe, in Spain, all the way across Asia. And Vulture Restaurant is really just a fun name for a place that the carcass is laid out semi-regularly. And so the way you survey vultures is to sit in a bird hide, which is often a tent or a, a little shack sort of structure hidden away so that the birds don't get scared off. And you sit there with a pair of binoculars or a telescope and watch who comes in. You tend to get uh, lots of different species of vultures coming down. You'll get other scavenger birds. You'll get other scavengers like jackals or sometimes wild dogs coming in. For someone who likes to sit and watch nature, it's, it's about as good as you can get in terms of work. In ecology, everything's integrated. So how do you analyse a specific part or critical species? Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Ecology is an absolute mess. It is, it is really complicated. Uh, so it's, it's one thing if you want to do an experiment in a lab and you can control everything really nicely, but, but out in the real world, it, it, there's so much going on, it, it, it's just a mess. So it makes ecology a really difficult science. And, you know, conservation science is, is the linking of largely human behaviours and human interactions with the ecological world. And so you've got this really big, complex centre of interactions that makes it really hard to isolate problems and to solve them in, in conservation. And so the best way to do that is to try to just look at piece by piece and slowly build up a, a picture over time. But it's it's really difficult because getting data on any particular species usually involves a huge amount of, of field work um, just to get small amounts of data. It's, so it's a very difficult science to do and it's a very expensive science to do. So with biodiversity, do you get to a point where you have to triage what you're going to save or put your efforts into? Yes, the biodiversity triage debate. There's a clear shortfall of resources to be able to do all of the conservation that we want to do. So we know that around the world, most species are declining. You look at something like the Living Planet Index, which is an index produced by WWF that looks at populations around the world since 1970. And in, in just about every area, they're, they're on decline in average. 
And we just don't have enough resources at the moment put to save everything, to stop those declines, let alone reverse them. So then comes the triage debate. You know, we say, okay, well, what's the easiest thing to do and that's going to give us the best bang, bang for our buck and we should do that and we should, therefore, that means we, we ignore other species. And, and people don't like that idea because people don't want to say we should, we should let things go extinct in order to save other things. Right. So essentially you're making decisions against one species against another, but everything's interconnected. Uh, absolutely. The, the point is, though, Unless we have enough resources to do everything, we are making decisions to let some species go while we focus on others. We mightn't be doing it explicitly, but we're doing it implicitly by the species that we choose to focus on. And these are really value decisions. They're not necessarily scientific decisions. Scientists can tell you, this is what we're able to do. This is the best of our knowledge. And this is what we think is likely to have the greatest effect or to protect the species that we, we want to protect. But ultimately, the decision about what we want to focus on is, is not a decision for science. It's a decision for people. It's a decision for governments who represent those people. I've heard the term Lazarus species. What does that mean? So Lazarus was a biblical figure that came back to life. And in a biological sense or in a conservation science sense, these are species that we thought were extinct and were rediscovered sometime later. So a great example of a Lazarus species is the Victorian faunal emblem, which is the Leadbeater's possum. It was first seen in the 1800s and then it disappeared for a long time and no one saw one until uh, one was seen again in the 60s. And there's lots of species like that that were seen long, long time ago and then not accounted for, at least by scientists, um, until often decades later. Does conservation give us ideas about what regulation needs to be done? So we've seen uh, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic reactions from a number of countries in Asia to bolster their regulation of wildlife trade markets. And that's really really positive. So we've seen improvements from countries like Vietnam, from China, from Korea, and we'd really like to see strong responses from lots of other countries too, I think. This is really a time that we can use the um, never let a, a good crisis go to waste is the old adage, and I think that's important. Wildlife trade is the third largest illegal market in the world behind drugs and munitions. And it happens because in many cases, it's allowed to happen. It's not necessarily seen as particularly taboo. And so we're continuing to see problems like, and we will continue to see problems like we've seen with this pandemic if the illegal wildlife trade continues to flourish. So uh, it, it's important that lots of governments around the world use this as an opportunity to improve their regulations and improve their enforcement of existing regulations. Is it also a matter of education? Absolutely. So in many cases, uh, it, wildlife trade continues because people are, are ignorant that it is uh, not allowed. And in many cases, it's a subsistence activity as well. And so it's important that we're not preventing people from getting access to nutrition that they need. But at the same time, we need to make sure that people are aware of regulations that are in place. Jerry, what inspired you to get into ecology and conservation research? Well, I think it doesn't take much to inspire me these days when I can get up and look out the window and see 
the bird life around us and just and I tend to just look at it in wonder. But that's because I know so much about the complex lives of these birds, the grasses that are growing outside, the trees. And it wasn't always that way. So when I was, when I was younger, I was absolutely obsessed with animals. Um, but then I lost a lot of that as I was growing, growing older and I wanted to be a mechanic. And I went and did engineering and just realised that I absolutely hated it. Absolutely hated it. But for some reason, I picked up a little bit of biology in, in my early um, science and, and realised again my childhood wonder at the natural world. And, and that's what really got me back into, into wanting to investigate and explore and learn more about the natural world. And, of course, once you start learning about it, you get inspired to protect it because you realise that there are so many problems out there. But, uh, the forests are, are heating up and they're contracting. There are fewer fish in the sea. There are fewer birds in the sky and uh, it makes you want to do something about it. Jerry, what misconceptions have you encountered when you tell people you're an ecology major and you're doing conservation research? I think people often tend to assume that anyone who's interested in protecting the environment and interested in doing research about ecology and animals kind of hates people. And I've found that that's often the opposite of the truth. Of course, you get angry people in, in every sort of field, but I, I think that by far most people in modern conservation science realise that it is about providing win-wins for society and the environment. And I think that most people, and myself included, think that one of the main reasons that we need to protect the environment is because we're protecting ourselves. It's an investment in our own future as well. Call it enlightened self-interest or something like that. Jerry, what would you like to activate in society if you had unlimited funds? One of the most important areas that we need to look into and one of the most difficult problems to try and address in conservation science is the interaction between the front lines of areas in mostly the tropics where we've got lots of poverty and lots of wonderful biodiversity, and they're in a really tragic conflict where subsistence farmers are living a really hard life, and often the only way that they can survive is, is in conflict with the need to protect the local environment. And it's really important that we need to bring local people along. We need to make sure that local people are getting the development opportunities to improve their lives that people are getting in big cities, but we need to also make sure that we're empowering them to protect their local environment. And so, you know, places like Southeast Asia, where you're, you're seeing poor subsistence shifting farmers who don't have any land, where you're seeing the front lines of deforestation in forests like the Amazon and places like Africa, that's where we really need to work. And that's where it's, it's really hard because we need to make sure that we're supporting people at the same time as um, as protecting the wonderful biodiversity that they the custodians of. I like the fact that you say conservation is really about not just protecting wildlife, but at the nth degree, it's protecting ourselves and our viability on the planet. So what would you like us to think about next time we're gazing at our wildlife out the window, be it a bird or an insect or something? One of the things that I often find myself meandering off into thought is about how interconnected we are and how wonderful these little things are that are surviving around us 
but they're also helping us thrive. And you can think how much poorer our experience in lockdown in Melbourne would have been if we weren't able to sometimes gaze out the window at a rainbow lorikeet, able to see a tree over the road, or able to go down to the park and have a picnic with our family or our friends. They're the things that really, I think, have been keeping us bright. And, and they're the things that will continue for a long time to help us survive into the 21st century. Jerry Ryan, thank you for making us think about the science, the social, and even the psychological of what wildlife means to us. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you to Jerry Ryan, PhD student and conservation scientist at the School of Biosciences, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on November 16, 2020. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.